do you consider yourself ambitious? And what are you ambitious for? What are the things that are motivating you? Again, going back to my younger self, and maybe because my bosses were male, I was afraid to show my ambition. I felt like I couldn't show up as an ambitious person. Now I think showing your ambition is brave and courageous, and it's okay to show that and say that you want something and you want to achieve. Alice, thank you for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It is so great to have you on. I'm thrilled to be here. So excited to be here. Would love to really start out by talking about your current role at The Atlantic. Tell us about that, what it entails, and what you do on a day-to-day basis. I joined in July after about two decades at Condé Nast. So this is a very big move, new move for me. And I joined as the publisher and chief revenue officer, which really means I oversee all of our revenue, commercial revenue, and partnerships as it relates to our magazine, our events, our website, our social, our mobile, our branded content agency, as well as a new area that has come under me, which is our IP, our film TV business. That is terrific. And so tell us about your career journey. So you did 20 years at Condé Nast. Talk about the publications you were involved with there and your experiences well before The Atlantic. I got incredibly lucky. I moved to San Francisco after college. It was the internet heyday. I had some friends who worked at Wired Magazine who had just gotten bought by Condé Nast and I jumped into the magazine business. And I would say during college, I never had really any understanding of the magazine business. I thought you were either a writer or not. And I had no idea that there could be a creative role there. So I jumped into a marketing role and really grew at Wired. It was at a time when there was tremendous growth with the internet exploding and we were just an ideas machine and we launched some amazing things. Then moved back to New York and I was like, welcome to Condé Nast. This is totally different than Wired in San Francisco. There's Vogue. There's GQ, there's Vanity Fair, and it was a crazy experience. And what was incredible is I was there for 20 years, but I had so many unique different opportunities and different bosses. I jumped from marketing into digital operations into sales. And I think that was a big moment for me was sort of moving from marketing into sales. I had always thought of myself as a marketer, someone creative. And a friend of mine said, hey, have you ever thought about going to sales? And I was like, I don't know clients. I don't know how to sell. That's not my thing. And they're like, you're creative. You've got big ideas. Don't worry. That's what clients want to hear. So I jumped into being an associate publisher and managed a very senior sales team. And I was terrified. (laughs) But then I realized as you started having these conversations around partnerships, it really was about solving people's problems, big ideas. What could you do together creatively? And then I really, I spent a decade doing sales from GQ to Vanity Fair, which opened up some tremendous opportunities. And then the pandemic came, like many people, I think I just hunkered down and was like, I'm just gonna work and we'll see what happens. But I had a yearning, I think like a lot of people, that I wanted to do something more. And I had a young daughter at home who saw me working a lot. And I thought I wanna do something that she's impressed by, that she thinks is important always been a huge fan of the Atlantic. And so when I knew there was an opportunity, I surprised myself and went after it. And here I am. And so my day to day at the Atlantic has been incredible. Obviously, the first six months have been just total immersion, trying to understand their business, trying to understand how we work with clients, which is very different than how Connie Nass works with their clients. And it's been a tremendous, tremendous journey up to this point. I love how you took all those experiences, built upon them at Condé Nast, made changes from marketing into sales, which I think many people would find intimidating, especially if they think like you, I'm not a salesperson. How did you approach those first few sales conversations? Can you remember back to a time, especially running a team that had more sales experience than you? How did you overcome some of those initial doubts to just get in there and do that job? I would say what I realized really early on was 
we are better together and our skills actually complement each other. And what I've learned around managing a sales team and great sales leaders, sales managers, is they like to be the star. And that was a comfortable place for me to live. And I was comfortable speaking about ideas and creativity, but I really let them shine. And the great thing about salespeople, the best salespeople, they're heat-seeking missiles, right? So if something works for them, they keep coming back to it. And so that's how I found both my relationships with them and sort of getting closer to their clients. It's like working with Alice is really working for me and my business. And so I didn't come at it as I'm your boss. I came at it as let's figure out how you do you and I do me. And one plus one is three. I love that. Was there a significant turning point in your career, would you say, when you went into sales? Did that set you on this different trajectory ultimately to the Atlantic? I think so. And I think realizing you can have these conversations with clients, you can make amazing things happen. And as I hopped from brand to brand, I realized, wow, I'm really equipped. When I was thinking about the Atlantic, I'm really equipped to do this job. It will be new to me and it will be a stretch, but I'm equipped. I have the marketing skills. I have the digital operations. I have the sales proved to be a great leader and a great manager. And so I was really ready to make that jump. So tell us about the Atlantic in terms of your goals. What are you trying to achieve? And what is so special about that brand to you? What's unique about the Atlantic is I think we are known for our influence here on the cutting edge of conversation. We have the most important people talking about our articles all the time. Obviously, people go towards politics, but the other end of it is during the pandemic, we launched a whole happiness vertical. And I feel like we really own that now. And obviously, the timing was perfect, but how to build a better life, how to find meaning, sort of that mix of what's important to your personal conversation to what's important to the American conversation is super unique. And who's the reader? Who are you writing toward? Well, it's funny. When I started, I asked our editors that question. And I found also just by who from the outside comes to publish at The Atlantic. For example, Maggie Haberman chose to launch her book there first and excerpt it there first. I thought that was super interesting. Or certain people come to our ideas section. And I think everyone knows that our reader is one of the most influential people on the planet and in America. So if you want the story to be talked about, you go to The Atlantic. And I think the reader comes to us, they are in a mindset where they want to learn and they want to understand a certain notion or idea, and they run towards the complexity that The Atlantic is able to kind of unravel for them. And I think we do a credible job of taking complex issues, showing all the perspectives, and sort of living very much in the middle, and doing that in a way that our reader comes away with, wow, I've got a real POV, and now I can share my POV with others, which I think is also the key. Is Our readers want to be the ones that people come to, and they want to be the person in the know, and I think they use the Atlantic. And it's not a quick headline scan. You're in it when you're reading an article. But the pieces, to your point, are so influential. You know, I think about one of our guests here a few years ago, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who you know launched such an important conversation when she wrote her piece on why women can't have it all. And I think that is exactly right. You're reading that to then carry the conversation forward, which then makes a publication really have so much importance and influence. And that's a lot of weight when you're writing each story or overseeing things. That's absolutely true. Let's talk about the role of media more broadly and how you think that plays a role in society today, particularly in such a divided society. You mentioned the Atlantic really taking multiple perspectives, getting to a middle ground. How important is that to you to drive right now? Incredibly important. And I think we've seen, obviously, in America, incredible polarization 
media is part of that. I think whether it's media publications, newspapers, magazines, obviously there's social platforms that have changed how polarized people are. But at The Atlantic, we really strive. I think when we were founded, one of the phrases was of no party, of no click. I think people trust us because we will come out with something that may be surprising. And it might be not something that's clearly from the left or clearly from the right, but is a true opinion. I think that trust has allowed us to excel and be a place that readers come to. I think where media lives in the landscape, that's a tricky one. It's funny, I look at younger generations too, and a lot of them don't even associate where a piece of news or journalism is coming from. Maybe they're reading Apple News, they're not quite sure what the brand is, right? And so I think we're at a point where there's so much out there, I feel like the pendulum's gonna swing and people of all generations are gonna stick to their trusted brands. Also, there's such an overload of content everywhere. You only have so much time in the day, and what are the three things that you're gonna go to? And I think people are gonna start moving towards the places that speak to them the most, that are most accessible, and the ones that they can trust. And I think we're seeing a growing part of the younger generation doing that. But there was a moment where I think they were feeling like, oh, I just got this piece of news. I just got this piece of news. I don't know where it's coming from. Does that pose challenges for you to drive your own brand, to make sure it stays out, it's distinctive, people understand it's coming from, they can relate and kind of recall things that came specifically from the Atlantic? That's the role of social, too. I think it's taken a while for publishers to feel like how social can serve them. Obviously, we do a ton of social work with our brand partners, but from the other side, I think one of the reasons why I came to The Atlantic is I felt like it was dominating my feed. Everywhere I looked, someone was posting an article or it's getting texted from a friend. And I think, again, the brands who and the publications that are able to do that to transcend the headlines and actually be incredibly talked about is how you succeed. When you think of your role driving revenue with balancing some of these other needs of the publication, are there any conflicts that come to mind? Are there things that you have to do from time to time that might make some writer, editor, or some other person unhappy, but you're still trying to promote the brand? We have a pretty strong church and state line, but what I find as a leader and also being a new leader is having everyone understand I'm a businesswoman, I need to do what's best for the business. And it may not be something that I necessarily agree with as a human, right? And I think at a point where we want to do business with partners who we believe are doing good in the world or trying to change. And so that, especially with a younger generation of workforce, we need to be very conscious of what is motivating to them, what do they want to work on as well. And so that's something that comes up a lot as a leader. How can we work on projects that have meaning and that are important to my team as well as our partners? And that matters, I think, now more than ever. Yes, I would agree to different generations in the workforce. I think we see that, too. There's a lot more mission-driven values and willingness to go to brands that reflect that. So you mentioned just at the top in your introduction and what you work on, there are so many different channels. This is no longer a print publication only. And so when you think about those channels, I'm kind of curious both on the customer experience. What are you trying to drive multi-channel wise in terms of a customer experience and revenue streams? How do you think about the balance of those streams going forward? And is there a new one that you're looking to capture? Well, we're always looking for the new one. I think what's been tremendous is the rise of the consumer revenue business, which I don't oversee, but having worked on The New Yorker, seeing that really propel The New Yorker and really understanding that consumers are willing to pay a good amount. The subscription business was just built to drive a page rate in the magazine. It was like, the more subscribers you have, the bigger your rate base is, the more you can get on advertising. I think now we're looking at businesses that have a good consumer revenue stream and what would be a good commercial revenue or B2B revenue stream, which is the advertising side, which I oversee. 
And I think that growth has been tremendous because we've been able to really invest in the overall product to have those two big revenue streams. And I think every business is looking for what that third stream is. Some businesses have been able to do e-commerce and affiliate. We're thinking about what that looks like for the Atlantic. Does that really make sense? We've had two big successes this year. We launched a limited series with Peacock called Shadowlands, and that's based on conspiracy theories. And then we have something else, Loudoun County, The Road to Black Power, which was rooted in one of our writers, Van Newkirk's reporting. There's a lot of opportunity there. We're found in 1857. We have a huge archive that we just unlocked. So whether it's working with older pieces and monetizing those, and thinking about derivative IP, there's other ways too. It's sort of leaning into new vertical franchises, like I talked about. Happiness. We found that Arthur C. Brooks and what he was writing about really resonates with our readers. How could we build off that? How do we get more bites of that apple? And so, what does that mean? We launch a podcast. We launch a retreat in Southern California where it's all about in the pursuit of happiness. So, thinking about how you like lean into what our newsroom, our editorial team is doing, and expanding it in a way that allows our partners, our brand partners, to work with us. So, how can they come in and do stuff? And then, with the retreat in mind, thinking about all right, is there a consumer thing someone will actually pay to come to this retreat too? Wow, it, it seems so far away from just a news business or from where it started so long ago. So I love that thought of the evolution of doing new things, and I'm wondering in your career, whether it was at the Atlantic or at so many other publications you worked in the past, was there a challenging moment you had where you really had to reinvent something, some way of doing business? And if so, can you tell us about that? How you overcame that challenge? It's funny as I look back over my career. I know there were so many moments where I personally had to reinvent. I personally had to pivot through various different restructures or new bosses. And I think a lot of people will think this. I think probably the moment that I had to reinvent the most was during the pandemic. I think everyone had to take a step back and understand. Okay, this is a moment where we don't know what's next. It was also kind of a great collision of work life and letting people into your lives. Right, we're all on these boxes. So really reinventing how you work internally, but then also how do you show up to your partners in in a way that you allow yourself some grace, you allow them grace. It's a tricky time, and how do you approach people? Even thinking about like how do you send an email to someone you haven't seen in a while? Like I hope you're well. I hope you're healthy. Just thinking in different ways. And this is more of a personal note. But then coming to the Atlantic too, whole new team. A lot of them work together for a long time, and so striking that balance of how do I let myself be seen as a leader, and how do I like show my human side. Especially when a lot of it is remote work too, that's a challenge in threading that line. And also, I think being comfortable with introducing change, also be comfortable listening to the team there and what they've had to say and their experiences they've had. I love the thought of introducing change when you're a new leader in a new organization to you, and I think on the one hand people might say, "Well, who are you to introduce this change? You don't even know us." On the other hand, is a perfect moment to do that because as a new leader, that is your right, and you don't want things to go on so long where you keep the status quo. So, how did you feel balancing that and making sure that the change you were going to introduce was well received? Yeah, it's tricky, and I think you want to listen and hear, but you also want to remember what you know and what you know that works, right? And some of it is thinking about who are the people within the organization that I know will get on board with how I'm thinking, right? And really lean into those folks, have them help you kind of spread that change too. It's hard, and having been on all sides of that. You always want to be open to be like, okay, that's a good idea. We did do that ten years ago, but let's try it your way. And you got to be open to that. 
So you mentioned during the pandemic, things were changing, obviously, for everybody. Did that cause you to think about work-life balance in a different way? And how have you struck that balance for yourself? I mean, work-life balance is such an interesting thing. I think when I was thinking about this, when I was younger and I was single, I felt like I didn't have an excuse to have work-life balance, which is a really sort of strange thing. I felt like advocate for myself or to take time off for myself felt odd. It felt easier to leave the office if you had a family or a child to go home to. And as a single person, I feel like I didn't do a great job of finding that work-life balance. And then as a mother, you're kind of forced into it. Like this child needs to be fed at a certain time. During the pandemic, I realized you're the only person that's going to do that for you. You're the only person that's going to be able to effectively advocate and find that balance. And it might not be traditional balance. I used to think it was like, oh, working nine to six and logging off or my weekends. And that's where I'm going to find balance on my weekends. And I think the pandemic taught you, no, it may look a little different as everyone's traveling a bunch more. I'm thinking to myself, okay, like I know I'm going to be on the road. I know my six-year-old is going to be sort of confused by that. Let's take some time before I go to spend a little time with her. How do I spend time with my husband? How do I find time for myself? That's the hardest one. I'm thinking about your industry and other women who have publisher, chief revenue officer roles, and there seem to be so many, which is fantastic. Do you think there's something conducive to that role, to that leadership position that makes it such a good role for women? I understand that women are great at this. I think especially right now as a manager and a motivator of a team, we might have instincts around that. How do we create an inclusive environment? How do we create a collaborative environment? How do we create one that is in service of solving the problem in a way that I think has really, really helped women rise? Building on those instincts and that being a conscious leader, being an empathetic leader has really, really helped women. One of the things that we've talked a lot about on this podcast recently is the subject of ambition and particularly women and ambition. So here are the questions I'd love to ask you. Do you consider yourself ambitious? And what are you ambitious for? What are the things that are motivating you? Again, going back to my younger self, and maybe because my bosses were male, I was afraid to show my ambition. I felt like I couldn't show up as an ambitious person. Now I think showing your ambition is brave and courageous and it's okay to show that and say that you want something and you want to achieve. And I think sort of in the early days, I felt uncomfortable being a woman who wanted to achieve and wanted to get ahead. I think the next generation now, they're very comfortable with it. So hopefully us women have helped them do that. But I do consider myself ambitious, but not outwardly ambitious. I've always loved my job. And that's something that's super important. So I've been happy somewhere. My ambition has always been to achieve in that role. But when I've seen certain areas that I'd wanted to go into, depending on what time in my life it was, I've had to make that decision of, am I going to go after that or am I going to stay here? I know I'm going to be happy here, but could I really make an impact? Could I make that move? Being ambitious and making that jump to the Atlantic was one of those moments where I was like, I'm going to go for it. I'm happy. I'm comfortable where I am. But like, this is it. This is what I really want to do. And was there another time where you were jumping to a different publication, maybe one that was very different from the one you're working on, where you had that conflict as well? And if so, how did you resolve that? I resolved those moves around making sure that I had one or two people that I was working with that I knew knew me and knew what I was capable of doing whether that was a boss or a colleague, but knowing that I could show up at a new place, which was totally new to me and maybe at odds with what I was interested in doing at the time, but I knew I had a person or two that knew me and knew what I was capable of. 
yeah, you've talked several times about having that support structure. So I yeah. love that. It's a great reminder to lean on people around you, to have people being part of the solution for you. So when you think about other women supporting each other as we pursue more equity in the workforce, tell us about what that means to you, especially leaning on other women. Again, probably going back to early parts of my career, I worked much of my 30s, wasn't married, didn't have a child. I don't think I recognized a lot of what moms were going through. And then when I became a mom and realized what maternity leave looked like at that point, I was totally outraged. (laughs) I was like, wait, what? Now, I would say in those six years, companies have done a tremendous amount and At The Atlantic, that is something like we are so supportive of our staff and our team and giving them space to be a parent, giving them time to take to be with a loved one or for caregiving. And you realize that is so incredibly important. And I feel badly. I look back. I was like, wow, I didn't really recognize that struggle as much until I became a mom. I don't think the women ahead of me ever felt that duty that they needed to help women along the way. It was more like a I kind of suffered through it and I made it and maybe you're going to have to do that too. You got to be tough. I feel like it's changing a lot, even just the rise of like employee groups and women's groups within companies helps. You can lean on it and you can share and you could be vulnerable. Also coming up, I never felt like I could share or be vulnerable. And I think now it's a way that people really connect. It's like you can share with things that are hard for you and it's okay. So as we wrap up, I'm curious, what's the impact that you want to have this year or for the next few years? From an Atlantic standpoint, we have tremendous work to do. I am so excited about the year ahead and how we can work with our partners, how we can make the Atlantic brand stand out even more in new and surprising ways. And then for me, I'm jumping into this new role. I want to do and continue to do what I love to do, which is manage and motivate a great team. I want to show up and be an empathetic leader. I want to be someone that people trust both internally and externally. And then I'd say from a personal standpoint, I think one of the reasons I took this job is past few years, I've been at home working so hard. My daughter sees me working. That impact I want to make is that your mom can work, she can love her job, and it doesn't affect you. In fact, it's something that you're proud of. So I want to inspire my daughter in that way, too. So pleased to hear that it is about the next generation. And I'm sure you inspire many others' daughters as well. So thank you, Alice, for being with us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And I cannot wait to read more of The Atlantic under your leadership. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be here. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Alice. I love the way she spoke about taking her skills from one leadership position to the next and how she created a council of people to support her. I also loved her reflection on how she can best model a career for her daughter. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.